You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this, implausibly, incredibly, impossibly, is our hundredth episode. When I started The Constant, I had no expectation that it would go this long, and less expectation still that anyone would, uh, you know, listen. But here we are. Here I am, and here, for whatever reason, you are. Every once in a while, someone will tell me they started listening to the show, and they are all well-meaning, and I am grateful down to my bones. But then they almost invariably say that they started with the bird episode, or the prime numbers episode, or the polywater episode, and I shudder beneath my brave face, because those early episodes, like the majority of my life's pursuits and accomplishments, are embarrassing. And don't get me wrong, I think they're good stories, and I think they do a good job of encapsulating what The Constant is all about. But the audio quality, the audio quality is embarrassing. And the production is embarrassing. And the mistakes are especially embarrassing. Which is why, on this, the 100th episode, I'm going back and remaking those early stories with a little bit of commentary. It's partly a victory lap, for sure, and partly a way to take a little bit of pressure off of this hellish production schedule I've trapped myself in, most definitely, but it's also got another purpose. If you like this show, and you want to tell people about it, say, for instance, because it's the 100th episode, and you want to mark the occasion by spreading this content around and helping it grow, this is, potentially, the way to do it. My thanks to all of you who've been listening for a month, or a year, or since the beginning, I truly don't know what I'd do without you all. I'm happy we've gotten to share so many weird stories together, and I'm excited for all the ones still to come. But if you're new, before you go on a six-hour binge of Chicago submarine history, or get swept up in a newspaper prank, or wherever you want to go next, listen to this. Today's episode, Start Here. That sound you're hearing is spring beginning. The song of the robin. And soon enough come the sparrows. And the terns. Until by summer, a cacophony of martins and warblers and herons. Do herons sing? A very different set of bird calls dominate fall. 
leading to winter. A world practically bereft of birds. Well, almost. Some cardinals and other stragglers. And pigeons. But I digress. That silent dead of winter prompts a question. Where do all the birds go? And this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I am Mark Chrysler. And this first episode is Why Do Birds Suddenly Disappear? They fly south. That's the answer. Birds fly south for the winter. Thank you for listening to The Constant. Join us again next week when we'll be asking, Are thumbs useful for holding things? And it is insane to me, uh, contemporary Mark, that I broke a convention that that I had not yet established in the first four minutes of the first episode of this show. But maybe that's indicative of something. Hold on, hold on. Quick follow-up. How do you know about the birds? I know why you, you think you know. You see geese flying south. Ta-da. But do you? Have you ever checked? Because a lot of times, if you check, you'll notice that they're flying southeast, or east, or west, or even north a little bit? After all, they don't just fly straight down all day until they get tired and then just land any old place. And hey, how far exactly have you ever tracked a flock of geese traveling? A couple of miles, maybe? Besides, what do geese have to do with the sparrows and the terns and the warblers and the herons? Of course we know the answer to the question, but we shouldn't mistake that for meaning that the answer was obvious. We know because we have records of observations carefully collected, because we're in communication with people throughout the entire world and transcontinental travel, radio transmitters, documentary film crews, ultralight aircraft. For thousands of years, people grappled with the question without the aid of those things. Looking back at the answers they concocted, it's tempting to laugh. So remember, it's not obvious. Ask yourself what you would have believed. And then, go ahead and laugh. We don't have much of an idea of what people thought happened to birds early on. The Old Testament twice references birds going away in the winter, but doesn't offer up any explanation of why or where. It isn't until the Iliad that we get a hint of what ancient peoples were thinking. In it, Homer remarks about cranes flying to southern Africa to do battle with pygmies, but he doesn't bother to expand upon that. In fact, he mentions it offhandedly as a simile for the ferocity of the battle at Troy, which seems to indicate that this idea, whatever it was exactly, was already in popular circulation at the time. Fast forward 800 years to around 70 AD, and there's Pliny the Elder, the premier historian of the time, who still believes in Homer's crane-pygmy war idea and gives us more details on the subject. He says that for three months out of the year, the pygmies eat nothing but crane eggs, lest they be overrun during the annual winter war at which they ride rams and goats. This fantastical idea refused to disappear softly. Although it lost significant favor in the next few hundred years, it was still a somewhat common belief at least into the 1300s, when it is mentioned in the travels of Sir John Mandeville, the most popular travel guide of the Dark Ages, which is even less trustworthy than it sounds. But that's just cranes. 
Even the Greeks didn't have enough mythical races on hand to explain the absence of every species of bird that migrates. And when the Greeks didn't have an answer for something, or even when they did, that meant it was time for Aristotle to poke his obnoxious head in. And in the initial version of this episode, I go on a long, qualifying, complimentary streak towards Aristotle. At this point, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but let's say hey. Don't get me wrong, Aristotle was great. One of the fathers of philosophy and science, student of Plato, teacher of Alexander. Aristotle's thoughts on empiricism and formal logic, not to mention ethics and government, are among the most beautiful, brilliant, and enduring notions in human history. But the guy could not stop. He comes up with theories for everything he sees or hears or even just thinks of, and a lot of it is embarrassing. The brain's function is to air condition the body, how low testicles hang, determine the pitch of the voice. Stop, Aristotle, just... You're making it hard to love you with how embarrassing you are. The love is long gone by episode 100. On our subject, Aristotle has two main answers, one of which is actually pretty brilliant. He reckoned that some birds transformed their shape, size, and plumage to adjust to the changes in weather and foliage. So, red starts metamorphosed into robins, garden wobblers into black caps, etc. Which seems like a weird conclusion to draw, unless you're living your whole life around ancient Greece, which European robins fly to in the winter right around the same time as red starts push off for sub-Saharan Africa. See? That's actually pretty brilliant reasoning. Aristotle's other idea on the matter is far less fun, and it's the one, unfortunately, that persists the longest. For all the birds that came and went without having some other species coming and winting at the opposite times, Aristotle says that they're just hibernating. Most birds, he said, must tuck themselves into little holes in cliffsides or hills and snuggle away the winter months in slumber. But swallows, in particular, he inexplicably reasons, dive down into lakes and ponds and rivers and dig themselves into the muddy bottoms, where they freeze, thawing in the spring. Aristotle's hibernation idea caught a strong tailwind, in part probably because hibernation is something people knew about. Bears and bats and skunks and snakes and bees and groundhogs, lots of things hibernate. Why not birds? But part of the reason this idea persists for it persists for pretty much 2,000 years, must come down to deference to Aristotle. Like humors and the four elements and ether, if Aristotle said it, most European thinkers assumed it was true, even if they'd never seen a single piece of evidence to suggest it. But people did see swallows wintering in lake beds, or at least they heard about seeing them. In 1555, the Swedish Archbishop Olus Magnus wrote in his influential book History and Nature of the Northern Peoples about fishermen pulling up nets of hibernating swallows. Okay, so here's the gold. Swallows burying themselves underwater and cranes fighting imaginary miniature men is all fine and good, but it's in the late 12th century that this stuff gets really good, because it's then that the Archbishop of Brecon, Gerald of Wales, has his incredible epiphany. And it is deliciously wrong. Gerald, can I call him Jerry? Jerry noticed a couple of things. First of all, he noticed that just before all the geese disappeared, they could be found congregating near lakes and rivers. Secondly, he noticed that many of these geese congregated on fallen tree branches 
which I guess so, if you take a really elastic definition of many. Thirdly, he saw that when those same tree limbs got waterlogged, these interesting-looking barnacles grew on them. And by interesting, I mean vaguely looking like the neck and head of a goose. So Jerry concludes, Yeah, you're right. That thing you're thinking he couldn't have concluded because of how ridiculous it sounds? You're right. That's exactly what he concluded. Geese transform into barnacles. More than that, since he'd never seen a goose egg or nest, he figured that not only do geese transform into these barnacles, but that they are barnacles, born that way. That geese aren't even actually birds at all, but crustaceans. Oh, well, that's not right. Hi, this is Mark from the present, and Gerald definitely didn't call geese crustaceans because the word crustacean didn't exist yet. In actuality, Gerald put geese into an even more dumbfounding category, the same one he and everybody else put barnacles and crabs and lobsters and the like into. He called them fish. Jerry published this screwy bunch of nonsense at the tail end of the 1100s, and people reading it obviously think, of course. They eat this flibberty gibbet up with a knife and fork, literally. Since the archbishop had declared geese to be shellfish, that meant that good Catholics could eat goose during Lent and on Fridays. Maybe that was all the incentive people needed to take Jerry at his words, because this one really catches fire. This isn't some oddball, cockamamie thing somebody shouted on a street corner. William Turner, one of the fathers of ornithology, and John Gerard, among the most influential herbalists in history, are both still saying that geese are barnacles into the early 17th century. Eventually, the Pope had to intervene in order to get people to stop eating goose on fast days. But importantly, he doesn't say Jerry is wrong. He says that since the barnacles act so much like birds, they ought to be treated as if they are. Even today, the bird and mollusk species Jerry observed are known, respectively, as the barnacle goose and the goose barnacle. At the turn of the 18th century, every idea, from Jerry to Aristotle, was embraced simultaneously in a confusing patchwork of aggressive inanity. But the tide was shifting. With the Enlightenment upon Europe, an English minister and natural philosopher sat down to straighten out the issue, once and for all. Charles Morton read accounts from sailors and travelers, observed the movements and flocking of various bird species, and realized swallows weren't burying themselves in lake beds, and geese weren't turning into barnacles. They were escaping the cold and seeking food. They were migrating. To the moon. So close, Chuck. Morton's argument is well-reasoned, and somehow manages to be both closer to correct and more hideously wrong than all the preceding theories. Part of the problem certainly stemmed from the widely held belief that all heavenly bodies must contain life. Why would God have created huge planets and moons and stars only to leave them barren? And Morton noticed that, at night, he sometimes saw birds flying down from in front of the moon. He figured that once they flew out of Earth's gravitational pull, they could reach speeds of about 125 miles per hour, reaching the moon in two months or so, sleeping most of the way. This is 1703, and the best theory we've got is they go to the moon. That's a lie, of course. It's not that nobody had thought that maybe birds fly closer to the equator in winter and away in summer, but it was just an idea. An idea without the gravitas of Aristotle, or the blessing of the church, or the trenchant reasoning of a well-intentioned 18th century natural philosopher. 
Are you wondering? Do you want to know when we figured it out? You want to make a guess first? 1822. 1822. The United States has already fought two wars. Electricity is being crudely channeled. The Watt steam engine is in common use. It takes until a year after Napoleon dies for someone to work out that birds fly south. And who finally figures it out? We don't know. We have the full name of the moon guy and the lake bed dude, but the closest we have for the real answer is one word. File storage. On May 21st, 1822, in Mecklenburg, Germany, a man, we don't know his name, woke up early. He dressed for wet and cold. He cleaned and prepared his gun. He hiked out to a gully by a pond and made a blind there, where he sat, still, silent, and patient for hours. And then he heard it. The rattling call of his quarry. Our hunter raised his gun, cocked his hammer, took aim and fired. Smoke from the muzzle almost obscured the faint, flapping fall of a marvelous, wide-winged white figure tumbling earthwise like an angel found sin. Our hunter rose slowly and walked across a field on the lookout for his kill, a white stork. But when he found it, there was a surprise in store. The stork he just killed had already been shot before him impaled, with an arrow still stuck clean through his breast, up his neck, and out just beside his ear. If you stood the bird up, it looked almost like it was carrying an arrowhead flag high above its crown. Filestorch, German for arrow-stork. I don't know what this hunter thought, if it seemed funny to him, or maybe it was a bad omen, a curiosity, maybe, but whatever the instinct was, He took his unusual catch to the University of Rostock, where the faculty quickly realized the arrow had come from sub-Saharan Africa. This stork had been shot by an arrow somewhere around Kenya and had flown with the spring, arrow attached, all the way north to Germany, only to be shot again, this time by a blunderbuss. But in so doing, the file storch, do you mind if I call him Phil? Phil gave us the knowledge that historians, deacons, ministers, scientists, and fucking Aristotle had failed to. Let's call that a commercial break. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. 
I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The first breadcrumbs show up during World War I, when a chemist at Johns Hopkins was inventing a way to synthesize silica gel. Today, you probably know it from those little paper packets you're not supposed to eat, but during the Great War, it was needed in quantity for gas masks. In his experiments with the synthesized material, Walter Patrick noticed that sometimes, when he used this silica gel to soak up water, some small amount of it resisted being absorbed. A few more crumbs over the next couple of decades. An American grad student in the 20s writes a dissertation on water that is adverse to evaporating when placed in tiny, thin, long crystal vials, or capillary tubes. Then, a researcher in the USSR finds a similar phenomenon in the late 40s. Blips. Curiosities. Nothing to take note of, and no one much did. Even in 1961, when an obscure Soviet scientist on the edge of Siberia began pumping distilled water vapor into capillaries, it wasn't important research. Just a tiny few drops of water in some tiny little quartz tubes. Nothing to start an arms race over. Except, it did. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and this episode is my best title of all time, 1% Inspiration. The experiment looked like this. Nikolai Fedyakin placed these tiny syringe-like tubes in a sealed box with a bit of water underneath. Then he pumped the air pressure out of the box, causing the water to evaporate and the vapor to condense back into liquid water in the tubes. But when he pulled the tubes and put them under his microscope, he noticed something strange. At the ends of the tubes was something... Well, it's something like water, but not... It was thick and sticky, like maple syrup. And it didn't freeze or boil like water. It stayed liquid down to negative 50 centigrade. Didn't boil at less than 400. And even when it eventually froze, it didn't behave like water. It contracted instead of expanding, becoming almost crystalline. What was this stuff? And how was he creating it? 
The tubes had been sterilized, the water distilled. The only possible answer was that Fedyakin had somehow happened upon a new mysterious form of water. Which would be a big deal. But, and I don't mean to pick on him, but it's important to emphasize Fedyakin was a nobody. He didn't have the clout to properly herald his discovery. The best he could do was to publish in a fairly obscure Russian-language journal, but that article happened to catch the attention of Boris Deryagin. You'd be forgiven for not knowing Deryagin. Lord knows I didn't before working on this story three and a half years ago, but he was one of the foremost accomplished and revered chemists of 20th century Russia. When Deryagin read Fedyakin's work, he rushed his obscure colleague to Moscow and... Stole it. <laughs> Basically, Duryagin had the reach and expertise to do what Fedyakin couldn't, and Fedyakin didn't even have the power to register a complaint as Duryagin sidled his way into full credit for the discovery of this new super substance. It was in 1966 that Duryagin announced said discovery at England's Faraday Society. The next year, he presented similar results in New Hampshire. The Brits and Americans were initially skeptical. After all, what were the odds that water, one of the most abundant and studied substances on Earth, would hold a secret so long and then give it up so easily? They laughed at the Russian, if a bit nervously. But some couldn't help but admit that the experiment seemed solid at first glance. Duryagin detailed for the world how he was farming this new substance, which he was doing in far greater quantities than the cast-off Fedyakin had managed, and a couple of Western researchers were curious enough to say, what the hell? and give the method a shot, if only to confirm that Russian science was full of inferior crackpots and that even the great Borister Yagin had lost his mind. But that isn't what they found. Both the American and British teams set up their first round of experiments. They sanitized their quartz capillary tubes, forced condensed water vapor through them, and waited for 18 hours. When they came back, there it was. On the edges of the tubes, this strange, syrupy, super-stable water, which had been called anomalous water or offspring water until the Americans stepped in, as Americans are wont to do, with better marketing. And thus, poly water was born. And man, was it a hit. When the American team published their first paper in Science confirming the fantastic properties of polywater and hypothesizing that the water was taking on a plasticine crystal structure, the story exploded. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. By 1970, every major paper and magazine was agog with stories about the new wonder water. Corporations and universities clamored for a commercial application, but most fascinated of all were the militaries. The American Navy held conferences while the Defense Department created grants, all out of a concern that there was a poly-water gap with the Soviets. No one was quite sure what to do with the stuff. Maybe it would be antifreeze, or maybe a coolant, or a lubricant, or maybe it would desalinate water. But whatever it was the stuff was good for, we couldn't go having the Ruskies getting more of it than us. Then there was the other concern that polywater was something more directly deadly and dangerous. In Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, he thought up a substance called Ice-9, a form of water that was solid at room temperature, and which eventually converted all water on Earth and killed off almost all life. Some members of the scientific community were concerned that polywater could get loose from the lab and spread, just like Vonnegut's sci-fi story. 
But while most experts were busy thinking up uses for the stuff or calling out hypothetical dangers, there were some who still maintained niggling doubts. At the University of Southern California, Dennis Rousseau had been taken by the flurry of research and started trying to make some polywater for himself. He particularly wanted to try to settle one still open question about polywater, its spectrographic signature. The major players in polywater, Duryagan in Russia, as well as a British team in London and an American one in Boston, had all attempted to figure out exactly what polywater was via Raman spectroscopy, shooting a laser into a sample and measuring the spectrum of light it emitted. Every substance has a unique signature, and the results from the three teams had been inconsistent. The Brits said it had the same signature as water, while the Russians and Americans showed a unique, uncatalogued substance. Indeed, Rousseau confirmed this. Whatever polywater was, it wasn't something they had a spectrum signature for. But he didn't stop there. Rousseau ran analyses for contaminants and found some odd stuff mixed in with his polywater. Sodium, calcium, potassium, and chlorine. But where were these contaminants coming from? All the tubes were sanitized, all the water distilled. Was he doing something wrong? Was everyone? He couldn't work it out. And then, during an intense game of handball, Rousseau had his eureka moment. He took off his sopping t-shirt, wrung it out into a container, ran the container to his lab, shot his argon laser at it, and took a look at the light emission. And there it was. The same signature. Polywater was sweat. Miraculous, concentrated, ordinary scientist sweat. Every lab across the world had been doing their best to keep their experiments clean, but they hadn't sterilized themselves. And while they were setting up their high-temperature water vaporization, it never occurred to them that they were also vaporizing tiny little beads of their own perspiration. Rousseau published his findings in 1971, on the heels of hundreds of scholarly papers about polywater, millions of dollars spent between the two great superpowers to achieve sweat supremacy, and talk of a Nobel Prize for Duryagan. Nobody, not Boston, not London, not even Russia, bothered to argue. The truth was right there, before their very eyes, and beneath their sweaty brows. Boom. Someday I think I'll, t I'll tell that story in greater detail. It's one of my favorite stories, and I think when I was doing this, when it was the second or third episode of the show... I didn't, I didn't know how to take the time. If I, if I had told that story today, it would be an hour long. Maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe everything doesn't have to be an hour long. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Anyway, we're on now to uh, the last of these early episodes that I'm remaking. This one really needs a remake because I made so many embarrassing errors in the initial version of it, including many might have noticed. Uh, I, I think I give a series of about six prime numbers and two or three of them are wrong <laughs> in the initial version. It's a very bad ratio. It's uh, it's quite embarrassing. Uh, but this is one of our first positive stories. And I think that's a good place to end this. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Three Years of Sundays. This is the story of two men separated by more than 200 years, among other things. The first is Marine Mersenne, a French friar born in 1588, whose genius spread itself thinly across a range of human endeavors. He worked on astronomy with Galileo, philosophy with Descartes, math with Pascal. He wrote tracts on theology, against mysticism, dutiful correspondences for the Old Testament, His correspondences, advocacy, and work is credited as laying the groundwork for the Academy of Science. He invented the afocal telescope and discovered the arrangement of the two-mirror telescope. But he is best remembered today for two areas that he changed fundamentally, prime numbers and music. Mersenne is known as the father of acoustics, having figured out various rules, laws, and theorems for music theory and audio perception. When I look at the sheer and staggering breadth of Mersenne's work, I can't help wondering if he saw the whole of his universe as a giant orchestra he was working to subtly and divinely conduct. Or else, perhaps, the great-grandmother of all string instruments, stretching its innumerable and harmonious tendrils out across all of Europe, while Mersenne worked a melodious bow over it all. And one of the striking high notes of his symphony was what came to be known as the Mersenne Primes. Numbers he had determined to be indivisible via the most elegant of calculations. Prime numbers have always contained a certain magic about them. They start so easy, numbers that have no factors other than themselves. So, 3, 5, 7, so far so good, I hope. 11, 13, 17, 19, 23. Uh, have I done all right this time? 29, I'm... Yes, 31 doesn't stay easy for long. And even today, there's no foolproof universal way of predicting prime numbers and no way to test whether a number is prime, but to sit down and do the long division on every possible factor, one by one, until you finally determine that none work out. I mean, we let computers do that work now, but the computers have to do it. There's no formula available to us or computers to cut down on the effort. But while there's no holistic system for determining all prime numbers, Mersenne discovered an equation that allows us to quickly discover some of them. The equation is simplicity itself. Take 2 to any power, then subtract 1. So, 2 squared is 4, minus 1 is 3, 2 cubed is 8, 
minus 1 is 7, and on and on. Now, 1 less than every power of 2 isn't prime, but many are. It's a group of numbers far more likely to be prime than other random integers. And Mersenne dedicated two years to creating a list of numbers that he had determined to be prime through his formula. 2 to the second power minus 1. 2 to the third power minus 1. Including a couple of staggeringly huge numbers. 2 to the 31st minus 1. 2 to the 67th minus 1. That right there. 2 to the 67th minus 1? That's a, a really big number. That's more than 20 times the number of grains of sand in the whole world. That is nearly as many atoms as there are in the universe. Written longhand, it adds up to, deep breath, 147 quintillion, 573 quadrillion, 952 trillion, 589 billion, 676 million, 412,927. And that is the number that Frank Nelson Cole scratched out upon a chalkboard on October 31st, 1903. Cole was, let's say for the sake of narrative convenience, the opposite of Mersenne. Where Mersenne was social, Cole was solitary. Where Mersenne's interests were broad and diffuse, Cole's was singular and focused. Where Mersenne saw music in everything, Cole saw it in but one. One thing. The only thing. Math. He studied math at Harvard, then lectured there. He taught math at the University of Michigan and at Columbia University. He wrote papers on complicated and abstruse mathematical phenomenon, stuff that reads like sticking your nose against an endless brick wall to the layman. Because the density and complexity of pure mathematics was Cole's true love. On that Halloween day in 1903, in front of the American Mathematical Society, Frank Nelson Cole displayed the depths of that love, the music his heart sang for math. The presentation was entitled, On the Factorization of Large Numbers. Dry stuff, to be sure, but Cole had a large crowd regardless as he was the secretary of the society and the editor of its regular publication. The audience settled into the lecture hall and in strode Cole, wordlessly. He approached the chalkboard and wrote out Mersenne's famous gigantic prime number by hand. Then, still silent, he stepped to the other side of the chalkboard and wrote out two much smaller, though still ridiculously large, numbers, one on top of the other. And then, the music. For the next hour, Cole did the multiplication, longhand, like you learned in third grade. The hall sat in breathless silence while Cole virtuosically laid out digit after digit until, finally, there it was. 47 quintillion, 573 quadrillion, 952 trillion, 589 billion, 676 million, 412,927. Mersenne's famous prime wasn't. Cole drew the equals sign between his math and Mersenne's and took his seat. He had given an hour-long conference without saying a thing. The audience burst into applause. A standing ovation, actually. It's no secret how Cole managed to disprove Mersenne's prime, and it's not a matter of intellectual heft, either. You could have done it. Or even me, and I can't do prime numbers. 
All he did was write down that gigantic number and try to divide it. Long division, over and over, with numbers as small as 238 to the number that eventually worked, 193,707,721. Cole was a genius, but his genius was a non-factor here. Only assiduousness, temerity, patience played parts. When asked how long it had taken him, Cole admitted he had spent every Sunday dividing factors into Mersenne's prime for three years. This story is an exemplar of human conduct. One man hones a great idea, an idea that ever so slightly brightens a tiny dark corner of human ignorance. Because of him, we all have available to us a piece of knowledge that wasn't there before. 200 years later, a different man devotes himself indefatigably to making sure that that other man was right. Not out of animus, not out of jealousy, not even out of a hope for fame, but simply because he wanted us to be sure. And when he issued his correction, the world, or some small piece of it at least, celebrated. Mersenne and Cole is a story of getting something wrong, sure, but more importantly, it's the story of people doing things incredibly, beautifully right. Now we'll just have to do an outro. Music for this week's three episodes from Lee Rosevere and Blue Dot Sessions. You've been with me since the beginning, you beautiful weirdos, you. Speaking of beautiful weirdos, thanks also to you for listening and for everyone who has supported this show through these first hundred stories. I've got a sighing daydream where you all band together in celebration and make a big fuss telling people to start listening right here now on Twitter, on Facebook, even in person. Remember being in person? It's back, sort of. Our website is constantpodcast.com. From there, you can find all our social media presences to share around or our merch shop where you can buy some silly t-shirts or phone cases. I need to buy a fucking Aristotle phone case. I'm going to get on that as soon as we're done here. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, provided the option exists. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash the constant to become a patron. You'll get access to the Constant Secret Feed, where I drop bonus stories, episodes, and other indescribable things, like the original intro for this episode, which I realized, just in the nick of time, was not a good welcoming place for new listeners, what with its casual profanity and manic in-jokes. But if you like casual profanity and manic in-jokes, have I got just the thing for you! We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to the swingin'est bunch of smarty pants podcasts in all of Podcastburg, including Open Source, the world's first podcast, a show about art, ideas, and politics. This week, Christopher Lydon, the de facto mayor of Podcastburg, talks about the FDA's controversial approval of a new Alzheimer's drug with doctors Aaron Kesselheim and Jason Karlowitz. Listen at radioopensource.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the newly rechristened Jean-Baptiste du Sable Drive, this has been The Constant. <laughs>